I think if you are kind of like experiencing those red flags along with high levels of stress where you're like, man, they used to eat everything and over and over and over, they're eating less and less and less foods. And now they're not eating any fruits and vegetables. And now they're not eating any dairy products. And now they're, you know, they're just like dropping categories and they're dropping foods off their list. That's when you're like, okay, I do need some more support. And there may be times where you're like, I'm not ready to work on this right now. And other times when you're like, you know what, this is something that I do want to work on, that I do want to help my child. And finding that place as soon as you do have the capacity can really help your child health-wise and also help them long-term. Ever feel like you suck at this job? Motherhood, I mean. Have too much anxiety and not enough patience? Too much yelling, not enough play? There's no manual, no village, no guarantees. The stakes are high. We want so badly to get it right. But this is survival mode. We're just trying to make it to bedtime. So if you're full of mom guilt, your temper scares you. You feel like you're screwing everything up and you're afraid to admit any of those things out loud. This podcast is for you. This is Failing Motherhood. I'm Danielle Batman. Each week, we'll chat with a mom ready to be real, sharing her insecurities, her fears, her failures, and her wins. We do not have it all figured out. That's not the goal. The goal is to remind you, you are the mom your kids need. They need what you have, you are good enough, and you're not alone. I hope you pop in earbuds, somehow sneak away, and get ready to hear some hope from the trenches. You belong here, friend. We're so glad you're here. Hey, it's Danielle. I don't know about you, but at my house, getting food on the table and getting kids to eat said food is a daily point of contention and stress. It feels like if you don't have a picky eater at your house, you are the exception to the rule. And there are so many things to get right or get wrong when it comes to food that I knew that we needed to talk about this on Failing Motherhood. The guilt and the pressure surrounding our daily choices of what food to buy, what food to cook, how to serve it, and what our kids eat feels incredibly overwhelming for even the average parent, let alone one that has a kiddo rejecting nearly everything on their plate or falling off the growth chart. With inflation rising and affecting food prices and picky eating coming up with almost every client I work with, I knew I had to have Jennifer from at Kids Eat in Color on the show. I knew she was the one to talk to because I guarantee after listening to this episode, she will help you feel like you are doing better than you think you are and you will feel lighter as a result. Jennifer Anderson is a registered dietitian that has a master's of science in public health from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. In 2017, she founded Kids Eat in Color a resource that helps children and families have better nutrition and mental health. Prior to starting Kids Eat in Color, she coordinated youth nutrition programs at a food bank, performed research in inner city food deserts, and consulted for the USDA National Office SNAP-Ed program. Her academic background is in public health nutrition, cultural anthropology, and economics. So in this episode, we cover common misconceptions around food that she is working to debunk 
that make us feel like we're failing, like whether or not you can prevent picky eating. She shares the four types of picky eating and what's going on and what's causing them, the red flags to look out for, and how to know if it's time to seek professional help. She speaks to the big principles or best practices that can help guide you to feel more confident in the minefield of feeling like nearly every food is bad for you. She shares her principle of not yucking someone else's yum and how to teach that to your kids. And most importantly, she wants you to know your best is exactly what your child needs. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jennifer. Welcome to Failing Motherhood. My name is Danielle Batman, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Jennifer Anderson. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks, Danielle. I'm so excited. I just told you that I could probably pick your brain for like three hours personally, if I could like make this my own therapy session about picky eating, but we're not going (laughs) to do that. We're going to talk about shame and failing with food and all of the things that we need to know as moms to help us feel a little bit better about how we're feeding our kids. And I followed you forever, but if you are new to my listeners, just go ahead and introduce yourself. Who are you and who's in your family? Sure. So my name is Jennifer. I founded Kids Eating Color because my own son began to fall off the growth chart when he was very young, like a year old. And years later, he's three years old. He's going to preschool. I'm making these cute little lunches. And I thought, you know what? I remember standing in my kitchen thinking, you know what? I cannot be the only parent having a really hard time feeding my child. I felt very alone. And so I started an Instagram page and now we're a huge resource for families all over the world, millions of families. We have a whole team and I just love providing both evidence-based information to moms and dads and grandmas and aunts, (laughs) you know, all that, and also doing it in a way that allows people to do what's best for them. Yeah. That was the point I also just made to you before we hit record is out of all the food accounts that I have come across, yours is my favorite because it feels like you make a very concerted effort to reinforce to every parent that their best is what their child needs and accessibility and social equity are really important to you as a company. And like you can't talk about kids needing to eat fruits and veggies without recognizing that they need to be able to buy them in the first place. And I just see that that's like such a passion for you and it's not talked about as much as it needs to be. So where did that come from? Who were you before you had your son? Yeah, so I started right out of college. I had a degree in anthropology and I started working at a food bank. I coordinated their youth nutrition programs and I saw kids who did not have dinners outside of school. Would it not be for school lunches or summer feeding programs? The kids didn't have food. There were kids who had never seen broccoli, who had never seen baby carrots. And I thought, you know what? Nutrition is such an integral part of communities and families and children. A kid can't learn when they're hungry. And so having started working in the hunger space, hunger relief space, it's always at the forefront of my mind. You know, my family, when I was growing up, my family didn't have any money. My parents worked in, well, my dad worked in 
the nonprofit sector and made a salary below the poverty level. And so I watched my mom take that money and wrap it around the block three times to make it work and to make sure we had enough food, but it was a lot of work. And so as I am speaking to parents, it's always at the forefront that they may not have the capacity to do something like that, or they may not have funds, or they may not have food that's accessible to them. To me, why are we even talking about food if we're not acknowledging that not everybody has the resources needed to eat according to some idealistic standard? Yeah. And I saw that too. I was working at Head Start Early Head Start programs. I did home visiting for several years with Save the Children, getting to have the honor of coming into families' homes for an hour every week as they welcomed me in and served me what they had. And it was just so obvious. And like you said, kids can't learn if they're hungry. It's like a foundational core need we all have as human beings that for the most part, we'll take for granted if that's not a problem at our house. And it's huge. It's what kids need to grow. And so how has that informed your approach as you started having your own kids and starting the Instagram? So I think to me, if we're going to put some sort of idealistic standard on parents, we're really causing shame, stress, guilt, so many things. And I am not going to put that out into the world. That's not why I'm here. And I've felt that those stresses myself. And as you know, my husband and I both have jobs, we're both working, and we've always had enough food for our kids. But still, I felt guilty <laughs> for everything under the sun with my, I mean, as a dietitian to watch my child struggle to stay on the growth chart was just amazingly guilt inducing. You know, is he going to be okay keeping me up at night? It's been so stressful. And so I think I can care about health and I can care about nutrition and I do, but I also feel like unless we believe deeply that we are doing our best and our best is good and our best is what our kids need right now, we can't succeed. We can't do well and we can't do better because we're too busy feeling guilty about it. Right. To the extent we feel like we're failing, that is like the upward battle we're going to have to go climb back up to even be able to address it or talk about it or find a resource or ask for help. So that's a big part of why I'm doing this podcast, because if as a mom, you believe to your core that you are not good enough or that there is something that you're doing that is so wrong, that is going to cover you in shame and throw you in a dark corner, then it's not serving your child. It's not going to help you improve if that is what you need to do. It is just a complete like stuck goo. Right. So if we can take that off, if we can like peel the layers of that, then it's almost like, you know, a hoarder, let's say, if they feel so bad about the state of their house, they're never going to find what they need for their mental health or for the cleaning service to come in or for people to be able to come over unless they feel like it's not a core part of who they are. And it's not a thing that they did to cause this and that there's other people with messes at their house. And, you know, getting over that shame is a huge component of it. 
And I saw that in your work right away. And that is why I was like, you're the perfect fit for this podcast, because we can get into all of the things that, you know, give us guilt for even like the, you know, the smallest little thing. And food is a big part of that, which we'll get into in a second. But I just wanted to validate and appreciate and thank you for, you know, sharing that message as loud and as wide as you can. Yeah, well, it is genuinely my pleasure. This is why I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. And that's why we're here today, too. So what are just a few of the ways that parents feel like they're failing in the world of food with their kids? Sure. So parents often hear the message. And I just as an aside, I think the more people are like, oh, we've done this research and therefore we know the right way to do things. And as a public health professional, you know, that was my advanced training. We talk about these big things that everyone should do, right? But none of those big things that everyone should do take into account actual people living their real life. And so as a parent, you're going to hear things like, you can prevent picky eating. That's a myth. The research doesn't <laughs> research doesn't even support that. If your child is extremely picky, it's not your fault. It doesn't matter what you did. And just yesterday, I got a DM in my Instagram account and somebody was like, I did everything right. I fed my child a variety of foods. They were all whole foods, no sugar, no salt, no fast food, no nothing. And I was like, you did everything right. And now their child is extremely picky at one. You know what? That child has internal struggles going on that you can't necessarily see. And so I think we hear these messages of prevention and they're not always going to prevent. <laughs> and often it's not true that you can prevent these things. You know, another thing that parents hear is that you have to serve your child all whole foods. Or if you don't serve your child XYZ, they're going to be unhealthy. Or XYZ is unhealthy, poison, you name it, people are saying bad things about it. I have literally received a DM over the past five years that has said every single food that I have ever put on my Instagram page is bad for you. I believe it. You take them all out. (laughs) I mean, good luck. Good luck. Good luck (laughs) surviving. All these extreme messages out there, there's extreme diets, there's extreme philosophies. And if we're listening to those messages, if we're getting our information from headlines, good luck feeling good about yourself or your child or anything else. Yeah. And when we don't know which of those things is right, which of those things is going to be the thing that screws them up forever food-wise, then it feels like a minefield. And, you know, like you're walking on it, like you can't even take a step forward because clearly you're going to screw something up and do it wrong and they'll be damaged forever. So how do we sort through the things that are non-issues and the things that are really kind of the core principles to focus on or put our energy into if we have energy? Sure. And I love that you mentioned if you have energy, because I don't know what, you know, if you're listening. I don't know what's going on in your life. Have you had a death in the family? Have you moved? Have you lost your job? Like, I have no idea what's going on. And so when I'm offering kind of advice and help, like what is important, what is not, there's not even a black and white to that. 
you know, yeah, there's a recommendation that you don't feed your child any sugar before the age of two. That's a great recommendation. (laughs) I also gave my child ginger snaps at 14 months old when I was laying in the couch pregnant and could only eat ginger snaps without throwing up. And I didn't care. I was like, you want a cookie? Fine. Have a cookie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm a dietitian. (laughs) And I could have cared less. So I think there's these moments where you're like, you know, yeah, I just watched my 14-month-old climb up on the piano and play with some nail clippers. But again, I'm laying on the couch making my other child and I had my eye on him and he was, you know, he was fine. But there's these things where you're like, I don't know. I just don't know what's the best. But I think there are some basic principles that parents can follow that actually solve their problems. For example, if you have a child who's hungry every 10 minutes, my guess is that's bothering you. (laughs) It's probably annoying you a lot. And you're like, ah, they're always fussy. They're always asking for food. I'm always having to think about this, right? If you learn to feed your child a balanced snack that has a big portion of protein, fat, and then the goldfish crackers on the side, that is going to get your child to the next meal much better than the goldfish crackers alone. And so there are these things that we can do that kind of do work in our favor. And they do help both our child thrive. And they also solve our problem dealing with a whiny toddler every 10 minutes. And this is something that I often talk about with the parents in my Piggy Eater program is like, Yeah, you were doing some things that caused problems later, but that means that you're a problem solver because you were doing something. You were trying to do something to help an extreme situation or a frustrating situation. You may not have had the information that would have helped you, but maybe you did and it just wasn't a good time for you to do it. And so I just like to give parents the space to say, hey, health is not my top priority right now. That's okay. That's okay. Your child is going to be okay. And then later you can deal with the problem that you created because there is no way that we can be parents that don't cause ourselves problems later. It's not possible. It's not a thing. Like I'm an actual person with, I'm a human and therefore I'm going to do things that cause myself problems. And I think we have to accept that. We can't try to live up, like you cannot live all the best practices. I am convinced that it's impossible because there's not enough time, there's not enough energy. It's just not a thing. Like nobody can do them all. Agreed. Same with parenting. Even like all of the best gentle parenting, positive parenting, positive strategies, they're all phenomenal when they're accessible, when you have the sanity to, you know, learn them and master them. Are you going to do them every moment of the day? No. Do I as a parenting coach do them every moment of every day? No, I don't. And neither does my husband. And that's okay. That's still the point of parenting is for us to be honest about that and to apologize and to repair after conflict and to model some of the values that we're trying to instill in like a semi-healthy way through leadership. And that's part of it. That's part of the parent-child relationship. And if we don't allow for our own humanity, then we're not giving space for our kids to be humans and have ups and downs and good days and bad days. And I'm sure that's a thing that really affects our relationship with food and our kids' relationship with food as well, because it's so necessary day to day. It's a care routine that has to happen, but we have these 
lofty high expectations that we hold ourselves to of what it should look like and how it should go. And ultimately, we can't control what our child puts in their mouth and chews and swallows. And then that becomes a power struggle because we want to feel control. Yeah, absolutely. I remember one time this now quite well-known person, (laughs) I sent them a DM because I was kind of friendly with them. And I said, man, I'm having a really hard time getting my child to the table. (laughs) For one, this is my area of expertise and I can't get him to the table and it's causing all this conflict. And I remember she said, well, why don't you spend 15 minutes before the meal with him, giving him your full attention? And I was like, what am I going to do with the other kid? At least like one-on-one time. I was like, what? Like, seriously, what am I going to do with the other child? And it occurred to me that this person probably has at least one nanny, maybe several. And so, yeah, they can spend, you know, 15 minutes of one-on-one time with one child. I can't do that. I can't leave the other child just to like, wander around. That's not even a thing. And finish dinner at the same time. And finish dinner, right. So I think so many of these recommendations, sometimes they're just not appropriate for our life. And that's just the reality. Yeah. Hopefully that gives some hope (laughs) for the listeners. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Hey, if you're new here, I'm Danielle. My company, Wholeheartedly, offers one-on-one and group coaching programs to help families with strong-willed kids age 1 to 7 prevent tantrums, eliminate power struggles, extend their patience, and get on the same page. It's kind of like finances. You can read lots of info about what a Roth IRA is and how the stock market works. But if you really want to get serious about paying down debt or growing your wealth, you go see a financial advisor who can give you very specific recommendations based on all the unique facets of your situation. I'm your financial advisor for parenting, and I've designed the way we work together to give you nothing less than a complete transformation. While we work together, I'm able to help you figure out why your child is losing their mind and why you are losing your mind and guide you to master effective long-term solutions through three main focuses. Number one, my Cultivating Cooperation Guide, teaching you the tools of positive discipline. Number two, Managing Your Mind by Working Through My Triggers Workbook. And number three, Establishing Your Family's Foundation by Writing Your Family Business Plan. My coaching is comprehensive, practical, individualized, and full of VIP support. So, if you struggle to manage your child's big emotions... If you and your partner's arguments seem to center around parenting, especially if one of you is too kind and one of you is too firm, if you struggle to stay calm and be the parent that you want to be, it's possible to stop feeling like a deer in headlights when a tantrum hits, effortlessly move through simple directions and care routines without an argument, and go to bed replaying the way you handled the hardest moments and feel proud. If you have a deep desire to be the best parent you can be, and your family is your greatest investment, find me on Instagram, send me a message that says sanity, and I'll ask you a few questions to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. I can't wait to meet you. Back to the show. And regarding the power struggles, I mean, as a parent, you are really kind of, you're in charge, hopefully. (laughs) You may not always feel like it. Most of the time. (laughs) 
And I say most of the time. I mean, I have very strong, wonderful children who are going to do things in life. And sometimes, you know, I'm like, you have it. Go for it. (laughs) You could be in charge of this moment. But I think at the table, we have a really amazing opportunity to help kids understand, yeah, there's some constraints in life. And yeah, parents are going to kind of set the routine and they're going to put the food on the table and all those things. But I'm in charge of my own body. I'm in charge of whether I chew it, swallow it, whether I chew and spit it out, whether I even put it in my mouth. I'm in charge of those things. And I think when we give children that space, we are teaching them something that they can carry their lifetime. One, with food, can they tell when they're hungry? Can they tell when they're full? Can they tell if something looks good to them or doesn't? These are important skills from an eating and health perspective. But then also just the understanding that like, yeah, I can listen to my gut. I can be in charge of myself. And they're really important things. And when you give your child that space, the power struggle is gone. Like, what are they going to struggle against when you were like, yeah, you don't have to eat the peas? Or like, okay, it just takes the wind out of the sails. And they're like, oh, I'm not, you know, they stand up in their high chair and you're like, how do they possibly get out of all those, like, you know, things that are supposed to keep them sitting down the straps and they're standing up and you're like, oh my gosh, you're going to fall out. And they're standing there with their fork and they're like, oh, I'm not going to eat the peas. And then you say, okay, I mean, what are they going to do? There's no conflict there anymore other than getting them back in the high chair. So I think we can eliminate a lot of our stress when we give kids the space to decide whether they're going to eat something and how much they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. And then what I see is if parents are like, okay, I'm on board with that. Then now I have to deal with the mind game going on inside my head about how they're winning and how this is going to continue forever and how they're never going to eat a vegetable in their whole life and how I'm a terrible parent because I'm being too permissive by allowing them to have a safe food at the table. And so then how do you address the power struggle in your mind of kind of like all the thoughts and all the guilt? Sure. I mean, I think the reality is you're probably going to have some of that. So make friends with it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's going to be there and that voice is going to be there. You have to just kind of be like, okay, hey, (laughs) I'm not going to engage with you right now, but I notice that you're there. I think the other thing is when you give your child that space, it is a best practice to give your child that space. It is the healthy practice. So if you're lumping that in with permissiveness, that's not actually what is considered permissive parenting in the food and feeding space. Permissive feeding is more of like, yes, you're letting your child make those decisions, but also you're letting your child control the entire environment. They call the shots on what's served. They call the shots on when they eat. They call the shots on where they eat. They're running around. You're chasing them around with a fork with one bite of food just to get them to eat that one bite. You know, when a child is totally calling the shots on all the things, then you're in the permissive category. But when you're saying, okay, you can have your body, you can make those choices, but I'm going to control everything else. Yeah, I'm going to respect you for who you are. And I'm going to make sure you have a food on the table that is familiar to you and that you usually like. I say usually because, you know, they've been eating bananas for a year and then they're like, oh, I'm never going to eat a banana again. Right. Yes. So, I think in that context, you kind of have to think about it in terms of like, what does 
the body of research say? And it really says that, you know, providing that environment where you let your child choose whether to eat and how much they're going to eat, that is the best practice. And so you're not doing anything wrong if you decide to do that. In terms of like whether they're going to eat a vegetable again, I do think learning to serve it in different ways. Are they going to eat cold or hot or crunchy or raw or cooked? You have a lot of choices there if you choose to make them. And that can really kind of help your child. Now, if you get to the point where your child does not eat any fruits and vegetables, then we're talking about a potential health problem. And in that case, you are dealing most likely with a really extreme picky eater. Again, it's not your fault. You could have done everything right, or you could have done everything wrong. And if you have an extreme picky eater, you were going to always end up with an extreme picky eater. So I think if you are kind of like experiencing those red flags along with high levels of stress, where you're like, man, they used to eat everything and over and over and over, they're eating less and less and less foods. And now they're not eating any fruits and vegetables. And now they're not eating any dairy products. And now they're, you know, they're just like dropping categories and they're dropping foods off their list. That's when you're like, okay, I do need some more support. And there may be times where you're like, I'm not ready to work on this right now. And other times when you're like, you know what, this is something that I do want to work on, that I do want to help my child. And finding that place as soon as you do have the capacity can really help your child health-wise and also help them long-term. Is picky eating behavioral? Is it sensorial? Is it cultural? Where does it come from? Like what is happening at like the deep root of it? I mean, yes and yes and yes and yes, right? <laughs> so picky eating is not easy. I like to group it into four categories. You have basic picky eating, you have sensory related picky eating, you have like medical or like situational things that happen that kind of cause it and I group that in with anxiety. And then you have something else, which is totally leaving my mind. Uh, (laughs) I promise. Yeah, it's a thing. So you know what? I do not consider picky eating in 99.9% of the cases. It's not behavioral. There's something else. There's something else that's kind of causing that. Toddlers are often picky. And one of the things they're asserting their independence. That's developmental. It really is. And you also have genetic components to picky eating, which is so interesting to me. If you were a picky parent as a child, your child is much more likely to be picky, even if you totally change the way that you parent your child. Oh, interesting. Your child may have sensory difficulties going on. You know, the way that their brain is kind of put together, maybe making it a really extreme experience or a really boring, not extreme experience. And so that's also likely out of your control. Right. When basic picky eating, there's a lot of things that you can do to kind of disable the picky eating from progressing. There's some things that you can do to kind of help your child and reduce your own stress. But then with anxiety, also, there's a lot of factors out of your control. If your child has like anxiety related to food, on the one hand, it's kind of normal that appears like around the age of one, neophobia, which is the fear of new foods or the fear of new things. And that's helpful. You know, we don't want our kids crawling around the yard and eating mushrooms, although they're happy to eat dirt and mulch, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) Right. But, you know, we do want them to be wary of new foods. The problem is then they stop eating vegetables. (laughs) And you're like, oh, man. So there is that anxiety. 
And it can be worse by what you're doing. If you're being like, you have to eat it. You have to eat it. You have to take three bites. You have to take two bites. You have to take one bite and you kick it down until, right? That's going to stress your child out. And that's going to make it so they really can't try new foods. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. Do you feel like it's true? The more you insist, the more they resist? Often. I mean, there's some like super compliant kids who are like, okay, I'll do whatever to make you happy. (laughs) But if you get a really picky eater, chances are even something like a one bite rule is just not going to work in your favor. And that's not the way that like this current generation was conditioned to have a relationship with food when they were little. And if we have not met a registered dietitian in our mom's group, then we probably haven't found other ways to create a healthy relationship with food for our kids than we had growing up. And I feel like it's so hard to override your instincts if you don't have a replacement, if you don't have a new toolbox or skill set or, you know, something to be doing and focusing on instead to work toward you're just floundering. You don't know whether anything that you're doing is right. And it all feels like you're failing or you're screwing up your kids. So what are like the three basic things that you kind of recommend overall for even just kids that aren't that picky to help them create a healthy relationship with food? The first is really decreasing that pressure, like not making your child try foods But really, instead, focusing on the environment. What do you have control over? Yeah, you can help them be hungry for meals. Yeah, you can put out a variety of food if that's something that works for you right now. You know, you can kind of control the environment and that enables them to be more willing to try foods. I think another thing that parents can really do is to accept yourself and your child. And, you know, we've been talking about this the whole time. But when you think that you're doing a good job, you give yourself more capacity. And with that capacity, if nutrition is something that you're working on right now, you can do better. You can improve in the next step that works for you. I have set up our entire team and all the stuff that we create to be based on a harm reduction model. And what harm reduction says is like, okay, let's say you're depressed and you're laying on the floor and you're you know, trying to help your kids survive, I'm not going to tell you to make a whole foods diet for your child. It's not kind and it's not helpful and you're not going to do it. But if I say, okay, here's some frozen vegetables that you can put in the microwave for two minutes and put some butter on it and put it on the table for your child. Maybe that's something that you can do. That's going to be a lot better than just Cheerios for dinner. And so even though it's just one thing and you're like, I don't, Like, it doesn't seem like it's ideal. Well, yeah, it's not ideal, but it's better than what you were doing before. And that's good, period. You know, I went through a phase where I did feed my kids Cheerios for dinner. (laughs) And I just, that was the capacity I had. And I knew full well that was not ideal for my kids, but that's where it was. And, you know, eventually I moved up to a place where I could add in those vegetables. So I think really appreciating where you are and the capacity that you have is going to give you more capacity to move towards your goals. So when should parents seek professional help? What are some of those red flags? Yeah. So if your child is down to like 20 or 30 foods, that is definitely a red flag. If your child is dropping whole food groups, that is a red flag. If your stress levels are off the charts and you're like, feeding my child is way harder than all the people I know or most of the people I know, that's also a red flag. And 
those things together, if you're like, man, I, one of those is really kind of speaking to me, one of those or two or three or four, and you're like, man, something is really stressful here. That is a good time if you have the capacity to seek more help. And, you know, a lot of times we find, and I see this in parents in our picky eating program, is that their problem isn't quite bad enough for one-on-one help. You know, their child is on the growth chart. Their child's not losing weight. Their child doesn't seem to have like major malnutrition. They're like, I can't get any help from a professional, from my pediatrician, from anything like that. But I feel like there is a problem. And that's when some form of self-education really comes in handy. And that's where we find a lot of people in our picky eating program are really kind of struggling. They're like, one, I want to know that I'm not alone in this. And two, I need some new tools. I really do. And that's when you can kind of say, okay, I'm either going to seek one-on-one help or I'm going to seek some form of self-education. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, thanks to you and your team and thanks to the power of the internet, we have so many more tools at our disposal, but that can be almost a bad thing when we're just overwhelmed by accounts and conflicting information. So being able to invest in one tool, (laughs) one resource is the game changer you know, like narrow down into what feels like the best fit for you and your child where you're at with the level of focus and commitment that you can provide right now and do that one next step. Exactly. Absolutely. So I would be remiss if we talked about food without bringing up sweets, right? Bringing up chocolate, dessert, you know, all the things, because that is like the big hot button thing of what do we do with, you know, all this sugary food that's surrounding us. and, And it feels like it's a very big point of contention. I know at my house it is, and I know, you know, there's, everybody's got a little bit of a different approach. So is there a best practice for taking sweets off of like a big pedestal, but also creating some type of portion control or healthy boundaries or, you know, what does that look like? What should we do? (laughs) I think that's tricky because you will come across people who are very confident in their opinions. (laughs) You know, there's, we do know on the one hand, if you're saying you can't have dessert until you eat your dinner, what you're really saying is dinner is bad, dessert is good, and that does put it on a pedestal. At the same time, you know, I was just talking to a mom in DMs yesterday who said, my son is taking a medication and it's really taking away his impulse control around eating sweets and he'll eat a whole bag of something, he'll hide and he'll, eat a jar of Nutella. And there are these things. And she's like, I don't want to restrict and I don't want to feel bad. And I was like, well, the reality is your son is not going to be able to make the decisions he would because he's taking this medication. And given the medical situation, it is your job to restrict it. And you might choose not to bring it into the house or you may choose to put it in a locked cupboard. The reality is things are complicated. It's not cut and dry. Now, I do always make the recommendation, don't use it as a reward, don't use it as a bribe. Because when you do that, you do put it on a pedestal, just plain and simple. That said, other people will put it on a pedestal for you. I remember when my kids were in gymnastics class and it was like, oh, you did a good job and here's a lollipop. And it was like, why are you undoing all the work that I've done? Teachers might use you know, things. So we do the best we can. We remember that we have just an amazing influence on our children. 
And when we don't do that, it does take it down a notch. And that's really important. One of my favorite strategies for kind of taking it off a pedestal, if you're struggling with this like dessert and dinner thing, is to really say, to really just put some dessert on the side of the plate with the meal and call that a day. Now, obviously, parents are like, what if they don't eat dinner? I mean, in the nine years that I've been a parent, that's happened maybe like three times. You know, it's not as big of a deal as you think, as long as you're not giving your child like a piece of cake the size of their head, right? You want to give them a child-sized portion that they can't fill up on. They're going to eat that, maybe eat it first, maybe not eat it first, and then they're going to eat their dinner. And it can really normalize things. Parents are always like, well, what about like Halloween? What about the birthday parties? You know, it really depends on your child, their health, what you're comfortable with. I kind of think of working with kids around sweets as like, how many experiences can I get them? There's going to be times where it's limited and we're like, okay, you can have three cookies, period. And then there's going to be times where you're like, you can have as much ice cream as you want, period. And we just acknowledge it for what it is. It's restricted. There's going to be times when there's more. And the more experiences we give kids, the more they can kind of experiment and have different internal experiences. I remember you know, my son, he was about five. He ate so much candy on Halloween that he laid down on the floor and was like, I feel so sick. I think I ate too much candy. That was his learning on his own. Now, sometimes I kind of like draw connections for the kids. I was like, look, you guys just ate cookies that you found in the cupboard for breakfast. Now you're going to be fussy. (laughs) And that's just like a fact. And this morning, one of my kids he drank Gatorade for breakfast. Again, if I don't kind of beat them to breakfast, they'll just kind of like forage around and find stuff. Exactly what my kids do now that they're nine and seven. Yeah. Yep. And you're like, uh. <laughs> and my seven-year-old was like, you're going to be fussy for the rest of the day. <laughs> you know, there's these things and we kind of struggle through and there might be things where you're like, hey, I'm not going to let my kids eat as much candy as they want. That doesn't work for me. That's okay. Don't use it as a bribe, but also just say, you know, this is my house. Like, these are my rules. This is what I feel comfortable with. And you may stick with that for forever. You may not. It's okay to change your approach. It's okay to try different things and see what works for you. Yeah, that can be very reassuring, even just to have that flexibility and knowing what I do today can be different than what I do tomorrow when I have more information or when I try something else. Do you see that some kids have more of a sweet tooth than others? For sure. There have been, I don't know how many studies have been done on this, but they're starting to kind of find some genetic components that do kind of determine sweet tooth versus salty tooth versus, you know, all those things. Additionally, like if a child has ADHD, they are going to be much more attracted to sweets and kind of like that quick hit. So it depends on your kid. And we're also kind of wired to want sweets. That's just kind of like, we're wired to get that quick energy, the fat, the high energy foods, right? So if your child is kind of, quote, obsessed with food, yeah, maybe because you put it on a pedestal, or it may be because they just have a certain body that's more attracted to that. It doesn't mean they're a bad kid, right? It just means that you may have to step in and say, look, you know, I'm going to have less of that around the house or something like that. Just helping point out just those boundaries a little bit more of, you know, help yourself to this, but here's the quota or here's the limit or here's 
you know, we need to share it with your brother or sister. So <laughs> absolutely. Teaching sharing is so important. Everybody needs to be able to get their fair share, period. Yeah. And I think siblings are a great learning opportunity for a lot yeah. of <laughs> Work in progress. <laughs> Battleground sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so does family style dining help, you know, kind of like serving from the same bowl or having them kind of scoop things onto your plate? It can be, you know, then they feel more of a sense of control. It can get kids engaged in the meal. At the same time, it can be messy. Kids can waste food. We are really having to, I prefer to like serve it in the pots, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) just put the pot on the table. Some of the extra dishes out, or I put it like in the storage container if I think we're going to have leftovers. So then it's already in there. Kids, like they take too much, you know, all these things. So I think it is a little more high maintenance to do that. And you might be like, there were days where I'm like, yeah, that'd be helpful, but forget it. I'm putting this stuff on the plate in the kitchen and it is what it is. But generally, less on the plate, the better for the overwhelm, right? Yeah, for overwhelm and also food waste. I like to think about it in terms of micro portions. So we want to have small portions. That's how we help kids get in touch with whether they're hungry or full. That's how we reduce food waste. And it also reduces their kind of anxiety over like a huge pile of peas, which maybe they are like, eh, I don't know about that. You can put one pea on their plate. Yeah, that feels more doable or with a toothpick or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like to call like big portions, wishful portions. It's what you wish your child would eat. But I mean, they can have as many servings as, it, you know, as their fair share at the meal. But big portions don't always work in your favor. Are there any other ways to put kids more in control? You can kind of offer kids a choice. I recommend a little bit of caution here. If you say, what do you want for dinner? That is really setting an unhelpful precedent. And you're also putting your child in a place where they think they have control over what's served in the house. And also you're asking your child something that is really big. That's a really big question for them. So instead, you can say, do you want chicken or do you want macaroni and cheese today? Or would you like blueberries or strawberries? Or would you like cucumber or carrots on the side of your plate? So when we give kids controlled choices, we are kind of in control, but also we're giving them some choice in the matter. Of course, then again, like one of my kids, you can offer the two choices. That's never worked one time in his entire life. It's always like, I'll take the third option that I offered to you. (laughs) So, I mean, one of my kids, it was like, we're just like all the books said. The other kid was like, I, you need to get a different book. (laughs) Yes. And normalizing that too, because yeah, no one strategy works for every single kid. And if you have that kid who will never pick out of the two options you give them, no matter what it is, then of course that's going to affect your food battles and the ways that you communicate with, you know, what those boundaries are. And that's normal. So you're not alone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And you can also say, okay, I know this is the reality. So I'm going to offer two choices and he's going to pick the oranges. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And it is what it is. (laughs) It is what it is. I don't need to make it a bigger thing than it has to be. That it, you know, means something about me as a parent or them as a kid and how, you know, they're never going to be able to succeed in life because they can't. (laughs) 
right. pick from these two things. <laughs> it's easy for us to go there and to be like, oh my gosh, they're never going to make a choice from what's available. And you're going to think like, okay, so he has never in his life picked one of the two options I've given him. But think about what that's going to lead to when he's an adult. He's going to think outside the box. He's going to be like, no, I'm not going to be limited by the choices you gave me. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do something that you think is impossible. And I really try to put myself in that reality of like, what are the skills that he has now that are just going to make him really a kind of an exciting child, as long as I can maintain my perspective. But also like, look, these skills are going to serve you for your whole life. Yes, they really will. And we have a daughter just like that at our house. And that's a lot of the clients I work with with parenting coaches is the ones that just don't go by the book. They're not gonna, you know, just fall in line. And I appreciate so much how well she knows herself. She just knows what she wants. She can very clearly communicate that. She really never falters when she says like, this is what I think needs to happen. And I never want to crush that out of her. And I'm almost jealous of that in a lot of ways, because I still have a hard time making decisions as a grown up. And for her, it's just so no nonsense. Like, this is the way I see the world. This is what feels right and fair. This is how I need to either speak up for myself or speak up for others. And it's so great. Like, we don't need to always see that as like a huge threat to our authority and instead just like embrace that side of them that says like, all right, maybe your third option is what we should have. (laughs) Right. And, you know, I do want to acknowledge the challenge that that is in the moment when you're like, you know, we actually do have to go to school. (laughs) The third option is actually not laying on the floor crying and screaming. Like you do have to get in the car But at the same time, there is that sort of like, I also am kind of jealous of just that like strong knowledge. Like, no, I'm not going to put that pee in my mouth. And I just think that is a sign of their willingness to stick up for themselves. And I think they will go far with that. Yeah. And they can use that for good down the road. I really believe. Right. So I have to take a personal spin and um, ask a question from my husband. So He is a chef. He went to culinary school. He was working in research and development for a big food company early on in our marriage. And now he works at a bakery. So his love language is making food for others. And he connects with other humans over food. And he constantly is going down rabbit holes about new ways to prepare foods from other cultures and how to introduce things to our kids. And he has been absolutely devastated (laughs) by their non-shared love of food and not being like just not it very much feels like the more time you spend preparing food it's more likely that they will absolutely reject it off the get-go right (laughs) and so that rejection has been really hard for him it's been a, a point of contention that he's really had to grow in his expectations and just you know hoping for more opportunities to connect over food in the future. And we do go to farmer's markets and they do, you know, help prepare things and we bake. And there's you know other ways that we have really introduced food. But of course, it has not looked like what we thought it was going to look like before we were parents, when we were like, surely our kids will be the most adventurous eaters and we'll be making all of these amazing things out of cookbooks for them, right? <laughs> right. Oh, for sure. And so that's the backstory of him. But his main question when I told him that I was interviewing you, 
was um, curiosity over the difference in cultures. Is picky eating a more prevalent thing for Americans over other cultures? Or is picky eating kind of like across the board experienced in families globally? What does that look like to you? Yeah. So, you know, people often bring that up and they're like, well, in other countries, kids aren't picky. Well, I have followers from all over the world (laughs) who are like, my child is picky. People like to be like, oh, in France, no children are picky. Well, I've had French parents send me plenty of DMs who are like, I can't get my kid to eat. Okay. (laughs) There are cultures who do kind of a better job across the board of kind of maintaining that structure of parents are controlling the environment and kids are kind of choosing. That is true. And that is going to really help reduce the picky eating in the culture. You know, we also forget that in the United States, for those of us who have quite a bit of privilege, we have exposure to so many different foods. In a lot of other countries, they don't have that many foods. And, you know, I think when a child has consistent repetition over and over and over and what the parent ate when they're pregnant is kind of the same as what they're eating now, there is going to be a little less picky eating because kids are going to, there aren't the same like exposures to new foods all the time. So I think that's things. And then I think there is kind of the reality. And if you read older books, you know, there's always these stories of like, kids who didn't thrive, of kids who are sickly. I feel like that is kind of in a lot of the stories. Like this kid didn't do well and this kid didn't do well. And I think we're kind of saying, you know, they didn't have any tools for picky eating and the kids just really didn't thrive. I think also if you're in a resource poor setting and you don't always have food, you are going to eat and you're going to eat a lot of foods that are available to you, whatever they are because you just don't have enough food. So that's a reality as well. I have not actually seen any prevalent studies that really look at, you know, what are the actual numbers of picky eaters all over the world? But I think it's a little more prevalent than we think. You know, there's also, and just to bring this up, people are like, well, you know, 200 years ago, kids weren't picky. I'm like, yeah, but their parents beat them into eating. (laughs) Like literally. So you know, they weren't allowed to be picky. Do we want to go back to that? I mean, I don't think so. (laughs) Like, is beating your kid worth like them eating the carrots? I don't think so, right? Not in my professional opinion. Yeah. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, I was talking to my husband. I was like, yeah, they used to beat kids. And he was like, oh, yeah, good point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we tend to forget that that was still not too long ago or and still happening, you know, today in families. So a very important component. So for you as like a last, you know, harap, when you have a pedestal that you can stand up on or a a soapbox and, you know, can speak to families, what is like the one thing that you always want to make sure that we haven't gotten a chance to maybe cover yet that you want to share? So, I mean, I have plenty of soapboxes, but the one that immediately comes to mind is like, don't yuck on somebody else's yum. And, you know, we talk about this with kids. But you have such an amazing opportunity with your kids to talk about food neutrally and to say, this is a carrot, period. It's not a healthy carrot. It's not an all-the-time carrot. That cookie, it's not a sometimes cookie. It's just a cookie. Just call foods what they are. When you set the tone of food neutrality in your home and you practice that, when your child goes to school 
if they go to school and they're looking at someone else eating a very different lunch. Maybe they're from a different culture. Maybe they're from a different country, right? All these things, food is often used to stigmatize groups of people and to disenfranchise groups of people and to say, hey, you're not as good as I am. Food is like, we know that food is such an important part of us. It's often the target of attacks. And whatever I do in my home around food, I want to raise my kids to go out and to respect people for who they are and not to use food as a source of making fun of other kids or making fun of other cultures and not appreciating them. And I think when we practice that around food, because kids eat all the time, we also give them more tools. The other day, my son came home and he was like, so-and-so was teasing me because I said I liked classical music. And he's like explored different musics himself. And he's decided that's one of the forms of music that he likes. And he was like, different people like different musics. And it's not like I have to like pop music. And, you know, his friend was saying that was the best music. And he was offended. He was offended at that. And we've never, ever talked about music, ever. I don't recall ever saying like, you know, anything related to this conversation. But I think the fact that we have kind of established that, you know, different people live differently and it's okay for you to like your food and it's okay for them to like their food. And I was just so amazed that that circuit that we have built in his brain, he was able to apply to a totally different situation and he felt good. He felt good about standing up for himself. That's so important. Wow. Such a good example of that, you know, laying the groundwork paying off when we can't, we don't know, you know, what experiences they're going to have when they leave us or what their thoughts are about, you know, a certain, what they're going to take in, what they're going to reject. And we have a kind of a similar value at our house where we reiterate that different is good and we celebrate the differences in everyone, whether it is choice of music, food you like, ways you dress, the color of your skin, all the things, all those differences are good and we seek them out and we value them. And that I hope continues to lay that groundwork where they really do point out and see, oh, you know, so-and-so is doing this differently than me. Great. Nobody's threatened by that. Right. (laughs) And so I hope that they continue to be those kids, you know, later on, really just picking up for others being like, who cares if he likes classical music, right? Like, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how can listeners connect with you after this episode and just share a little bit about the resources that you have to offer? Sure. So kissingcolor.com is an amazing resource center for parents who want to learn about feeding their babies, their toddlers, who want to learn about child nutrition, who want to learn, you know, have some diverse recipes to try. And of course, there is also Instagram and Facebook and, you know, Pinterest and all those fun places if you kind of want your daily dose of Kids in Color. But kidsincolor.com is really where you're going to find the free picky eating guide, the free shopping list if you want some free resources to kind of help take some of the stress out of your life. And then we also do have the courses. We have our new toddler and child feeding course. We have the picky eating course. We have those sorts of things along with meal plans and, you know, fun stuff. And there's a quiz they can take about whether or not they have a picky eater. Yeah. So if you want to kind of know 
Do I have an extreme picky eater or do you have a typical picky eater? Like what's my situation? You can take the quiz and that will, it's kind of just a screener. It's like one, two minutes. And then you can kind of get a better idea. Is this like a more extreme situation or is it more typical? Okay. I'll share the link to that in the show notes as well as, you know, your website and all the things to connect with you. I definitely want listeners to be able to take that next step. So the last question that I have that I ask every guest that comes on is how are you the mom that your kids need? So I really believe that I take action for my kids. You know, we haven't had the kind of easy road that you kind of hope you'll have with your kids. And of course, nobody does, but we do have daydreams before we're parents, right? And one thing that I have consistently done is I've seen an issue and I've had those questions and I've sought out the answers. I haven't stopped. I haven't stopped. Like sometimes we've tried different things. I'm like, well, that's not working. It's still not working. Oh, we try, we've been trying things for three years. Like my kids had a stomach ache for three years. We finally found the solution, right? And I just think it is one of those things where I do. I'm going to take action. I'm going to find the solution. I'm going to spend the time. And I feel good about that. Yeah, and you should. Absolutely. And I know that listeners will see themselves in that as well and may not have been giving themselves credit for that. So now is the opportunity to pat yourself up on the back and really value what you're contributing to your kids and to your family by even just seeking out this podcast episode. It really does matter. Those little, little things. So thanks again, Jennifer, for all the wisdom, for just normalizing the struggle and being able to share that wisdom that can help us with the minefield of food going forward and feeling a little bit better about how we're doing with the capacity we have today. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was great. Of course. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Failing Motherhood. Your kids are so lucky to have you. If you loved this episode, take a screenshot right now and share it in your Instagram stories and tag me. If you're loving the podcast, be sure that you've subscribed and leave a review so we can help more moms know that they are not alone if they feel like they're failing motherhood on a daily basis. And if you're ready to transform your relationship with your strong-willed child and invest in the support you need to make it happen, schedule your free consultation using the link in the show notes. I can't wait to meet you. Thanks for coming on this journey with me. I believe in you and I'm cheering you on.